Today I'll be chatting with Dr. Zoe McLaren about COVID-19 testing. Dr. McLaren strongly believes that robust testing programs are a vital tool in the fight against COVID-19 and that they have yet to realize their full potential. As she explains, even imperfect tests can be incredibly valuable as part of a broader testing program. Our conversation gets into the nuts and bolts of different diagnostic and screening tests, how they're being used and how they could be better deployed for maximum impact. We also discuss how COVID-19 testing data can help each of us to understand the COVID-19 situation in our area and elsewhere. As someone who spends far too much time looking at my regional COVID dashboard, this was a definite highlight. We close with a discussion of what testing might look like as part of the next six to 12 months now that vaccines are rolling out and new testing technologies are coming on board. Dr. Zoe McLaren holds a PhD in public policy and economics from the University of Michigan and is currently an associate professor in the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. She has worked extensively in other infectious diseases, including HIV and TB, and is now focused heavily on COVID-19. She's written and spoken about COVID-19 testing policies and is currently developing methods to estimate COVID-19 prevalence. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Dr. Zoe McLaren, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to be here, Shauna. Uh, as you know, I discovered you through Bill Nye, the science guy. It was actually the first episode I listened to was yours. And I'm really glad I did because I think you do a really great job of providing uh, a public health and policy perspective um, that's different than when we normally spend time thinking about just our individual choices and decisions. So I'm looking forward to digging more into how you know, the same data serves a different purpose for individuals and at a policy level. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I also really enjoyed your article in the conversation recently, which I hope we can touch on a little bit. Uh, I think you entitled it Stop Blaming Testing for the Rising COVID Rates, something along those lines. <laughs> it's basically that we the, the, the soaring um, COVID cases in the U.S. are not due to testing, but they really do represent um, increase in actual cases. I think it's it's actually really interesting how all of us, uh, definitely including myself, are becoming a little bit educated, more educated about epidemiology. But it can be a bit dangerous when we we get this concept of you know tests that case rates are related to testing rates, and then we over apply it when um, perhaps not appropriately. Exactly. I think everybody's learned an awful lot about epidemiology and public health over the past mm -hmm. few months uh, for good reason. But then we also need to be aware of our limitations so that what we yes. learn outside of, you know, academic training has has limitations. We need to be careful that we're not overconfident about that. So to um, to set kind of the groundwork for the rest of our conversation, I think we need to get some terminology straight and just um, sort of go through the nuts and bolts of the main types of testing for COVID that are out there um, without without gory details, just so we have the term straight in and we can. And I think you and I agree that we'll focus our conversation on the diagnostic side, but just you should probably differentiate um, from the antibody testing up front. 
Exactly. And so uh, there's a couple of different ways that we differentiate tests. So in terms of diagnostic tests, we also differentiate between diagnostic and screening approaches to testing. So the way to think about it is generally what are the different types of test technologies? And then we can think about how we actually use them in terms of testing programs. And so there are uh, we first need to differentiate between tests of current infection and tests of current or past infection or exposure. So there are antibody tests that test whether somebody has been um, uh, exposed to the virus in the past. And we wanna leave those aside for this conversation and focus specifically on tests of current infection. And that tell us, um, those tests will tell us whether somebody is currently infected with the virus and also give us some idea about whether they might be contagious, which is one of the key things we need to know when we think about designing public health policy. And so the type of test that most people are most familiar with is the PCR test, polymerase chain reaction. And the idea with that test is for the most part requires a lab. And what it does is it takes the test samples, so often a uh, nasopharyngeal swab, so the swab that goes right into the very back of the nose, or it could use a swab that just uses um, a sample from the nostril. And basically, it's put into a machine and the machine replicates the, if there's any viral um, particles in there, uh, it replicates those particles. And so basically, it's a way to tell if there are any viral particles in the sample. And it's very, very sensitive to small amounts of, of virus particles because of the replication process. It kind of amplifies um, the virus RNA. So we can detect very low levels of the virus. And then we have antigen testing. So this is what is often known as a rapid test. Uh, there are rapid PCR tests, but this is a kind of rapid antigen testing. And so the idea with the antigen test is that it doesn't replicate virus um, RNA. It just works with kind of the virus particles, virus proteins that are in the sample. And what it does is it's usually a, um, a paper strip that is embedded with antibodies. And what those antibodies do is they attach to viral particles in the, in the sample. So again, we use a nasal pharyngeal swab or a nostril swab or potentially using saliva, depending on the different types of tests. And basically those antibodies will bind to the virus proteins and then also bind to uh, color indicators. And so when we read the antigen test, we can see usually a line um, or two lines that indicate that it's a positive result. So one of the lines is a control line to make sure that the test is working properly and another line that shows whether there were virus particles in the sample. Mm -hmm. And that antigen testing is very similar to what the technology, almost identical to the technology used in pregnancy tests. Mm -hmm. And so it's a rapid test, but it is less sensitive in certain cases because it doesn't, um, it doesn't amplify the virus particles. It just works with the sample itself. And so it's not gonna be able to detect very low levels of the virus quite as easily. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean it it, um, it, it it means that it has some limitations, but we can use it in certain types of uh, public health screening programs that enable us to use um, the antigen test to its full potential. Yeah, so I think just to summarize those two, um, the PCR-based test has the advantage of maybe a, a little bit higher sensitivity because it can, it can detect a lower copy number, um, whereas the, uh, an the antigen test is using a protein. It can, it's not quite as sensitive, but you can generally do it faster because it doesn't require a lab. You can do it on site and you can get a result very quickly. Exactly. And the way that I think about uh, the antigen testing, the rapid tests, is that it 
is able to do the test rapidly and it sacrifices a little bit in terms of sensitivity, but it actually mm -hmm. sacrifices the sensitivity where it matters least. So it's still very sensitive for patients mm -hmm. who are highly contagious and less mm -hmm. sensitive for patients who may be beyond the contagious period. Yeah, my understanding is that it can take maybe three to four days after exposure to have a PCR positive test. Is that is that your understanding as well in general? I mean, different tests, I suppose different labs run different assays, and so they're going to vary sensitivity from lab to lab. But um, I, I was actually looking this up for, you know, of course, personal situations and um, wondering how many days after exposure can you actually really trust a PCR test versus an antigen test because your viral load goes up by the day. Exactly. And so the idea about kind of when is the, like, if, if we think we might be exposed, how much, how long should we wait until we get a test to kind of mm -hmm. get the best um, chance of getting kind of the actual yes. ac yes. accurate result? And yes. so part of that depends on the virus incubation period, mm -hmm. which varies from person to person in different cases. And so the virus incubation period could be anywhere from kind of three days to about 10 or 11 days. And that incubation period is after you've been exposed but the virus hasn't kind of yet started to replicate. And so you're not contagious yet. Your tests are not necessarily positive, mm -hmm. but you're still um, infected with the virus and the, um, and the uh, your contagiousness and your viral load will increase it kind of once the incubation period's over. So at the end of the incubation period, the virus starts to replicate, it kind of comes alive. And so it is going to kind of shoot your viral load up quite steeply. So it's gonna mm -hmm. rise very quickly. Mm -hmm. And then it will kind of stay high during the pe period of peak contagiousness, and then it will decline after that. And we have a little bit of information about the pattern, you know, kind of if if um, the kind of uh, kind of several days afterwards what the pattern of viral load is. But we don't have really good data on that uh, at this point. But basically, there's kind of a peak contagious period early mm -hmm. in infection, and then viral load drops down and contagiousness drops down as well. Mm -hmm. So early in, so at the end of the incubation period, when the virus starts to replicate, there's a very, very steep increase in the, the kind of um, amount of virus in the body. Mm -hmm. And so early in that period when the virus is still pretty low, PCR tests are going to be more sensitive than these antigen tests. But that window where PCR early, kind of before the peak, where PCR tests are more sensitive than antigen tests is actually a very short window of time. Mm -hmm. And then at some point during the peak, both uh, antigen tests and PCR tests are able to detect infection. And that's when people mm -hmm. are most highly contagious. Yeah. After the peak, the viral load drops down, it's going to be past the point where an antigen test might not pick up the uh, viral load in the body. The person might be less infectious. Mm -hmm. and But the PCR test is still going to be able to pick up the uh, infections in people beyond peak because it's much more sensitive. So even if there's a very low level of virus in the body, the PCR test is going to amplify that to be able until it's kind of a detectable level for the test. Right. So a PCR test, for example, might be able to detect virus from day three to day 11, but maybe the antigen test from day four to day 10 or something like that. And it's a little bit on either side. Something one that we think about, we think it's actually more, so for example, if, day, if there's a three-day incubation period, that during day three, the, early, the beginning of day three, the PCR would be able to detect and the antigen test wouldn't, but by the end of day three, they would both be able to mm. detect it. So the window early on where PCR is more sensitive than the antigen test for viral load is a pretty narrow window. Mm. And the idea with the antigen test is it might be day, kind of days three through six that an antigen test would come back positive, and then days six through 
um, much longer is when mm -hmm. the PCR test would then be more sensitive. Okay. And so the idea here is during the peak, both tests are very sensitive in terms of detecting yeah. uh, peak viral load. And that's also a really important time because that is when people are most contagious. Mm -hmm. So being contagious um, is correlated with the amount of the kind of the viral load, the amount of virus in the body. And so yeah. during the peak, most likely to be contagious, um, most easily detectable by the antigen tests. And uh, symptoms, is it fair to say symptoms tend to follow a few days after the ramp up of detectability? I've heard so, that contagiousness usually precedes symptoms by a few days, so that must. So we still, uh, we have a, a fair amount of data around it. We're still kind of understanding because the, the trends differ a little bit from person to person. Mm -hmm. But our best understanding is that contagiousness rises before symptoms kick in. And so there, we think about that as people being pre-symptomatic. So before their symptoms kick in, they are, um, there's, they're uh, infected and contagious. Mm -hmm. And then there are also cases that are asymptomatic. They never, ever develop symptoms, even though they're infectious, even though they're contagious during this period. Yeah. And so uh, the latest studies I've seen, we think it's somewhere between 40 and 60% of all transmission is due to this um, kind of without symptoms period, either pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic. So it's mm -hmm. about half of all transmission is driven during the period where there are no symptoms. And the mm -hmm. key thing about that is that without, um, so that's part of why we do social distancing and wear masks, mm -hmm. because those are precautions we take regardless of whether somebody is contagious or not, even mm -hmm. if we don't know. But the beauty about testing is that testing is a way to determine is somebody contagious even if they don't have symptoms. And so the fact that so much transmission is driven by people who don't have symptoms uh, really underscores the importance of testing and not just testing once your symptoms show up, but the idea about people being tested on a regular basis, being tested frequently, being tested even if they don't have symptoms in order to pick up cases that are contagious, even though they have no, no symptoms at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's, that's a good segue into just the, the concept of testing program. So I wanted to hear from you, what would your you know, ideal testing program look like and what would that deliver societally? Okay, so the idea about having an ideal testing program, I always think about kind of what is kind of what's achievable, what can we what direction do we want to move in? How do we define kind of success? How do we define how much testing is enough testing? Mm -hmm. And the idea is that we want people to know their uh, infection and contagiousness status at all times. That is the ideal. So everybody, no matter what, would know, am I contagious right now or not? Mm -hmm. And they need that information in order to make um, informed public health decisions about whether they are going to interact with their family members, interact with close friends, uh, mm -hmm. go to work, go to school, things like that. And so we want people to know their status at all times. And so there are multiple ways that we can achieve this, but the idea is that everybody should have easy access to testing. So the testing should be convenient. It should be, it should be free. It should be widespread, so a large proportion, ideally, everybody in the population should get access to it. And they should be able to do it um, frequently. So the idea is not like, I'm just going to get tested once every six months, but you can kind of get tested on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And so we think about that as being the ideal. We can achieve that in a number of different ways. We can achieve that by having tests available at home, so people can test themselves at home. We can achieve that by having uh, what I call the, the Starbucks or the food truck model, where on every street corner there is somewhere where you can stop by um, and, and get a test, and it takes as much time as picking up a cup of coffee. 
Uh, we can have uh, kind of mo so so those are kind of the most convenient. Uh, what we have now, we have kind of drive up testing sites. We have walk up testing sites. We have places where you can go. You can get tested through your doctor. There's a lot of options. But basically, the idea is that the level of testing that Canada and the U.S. are at right now is is less than ideal. And so the idea is right now, most people in Canada and the U.S., if they want a test, they can get a test. They It might take them half the day. Um, who knows when their test results are going to turn around. But that is not the ideal. The ideal is not like, oh, if I need a test, I can figure out how to get one. The idea is that the testing is so convenient that it's really easy to get and that we're willing to get it kind of more often. So the idea about having frequent testing is one way we can actually help control the, um, control the virus. So if we're all just waiting until we engage in some activity we think is quite risky or we have symptoms or we know some, we've been exposed in order to test, well, that's going to be too late in a lot of the cases to um, avoid that kind of pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic spread mm -hmm. that, that is a big driver of transmission. Mm -hmm. And so we want testing to be routine and easy. People get tested a lot, and it means we're going to be able to turn up cases, catch cases really early before they're able to spread widely. But if we're looking for an example, so um, I do have one example, though, um, with Slovakia. So a couple of weeks ago, Slovakia uh, did a mass testing program. And so they tested a kind of huge proportion of their population uh, one weekend and then the following weekend. And basically, they were able to um, kind of tra uh, transmission in cases were kind of skyrocketing, and they were able to bring the number of cases down pretty significantly through this uh, this uh, mass rapid testing, rapid antigen testing program. Mm -hmm. And so there is some evidence these mass testing programs really help to get cases down. Obviously, it's not just a one and done thing. Once you get cases mm -hmm. down, if you don't continue uh, testing, masking up, social distancing, your cases are going to rise again. But the idea that doing mass testing, they kind of demonstrated that it is possible to do it. Mm -hmm. And with the Slovakia case, it's also worth mentioning that they were using, I don't know exactly which antigen tests they were using because there are several on the market that have different uh, levels of sensitivity and specificity. Mm -hmm. But the tests that they were using, they're, they're, it is known for having a small number of false positives and false negatives. Mm -hmm. And as far as I know, Slovakia didn't do anything in particular to address the fact that it had false negative and false positives. They mm -hmm. just rolled it out. If you got a, if you got a positive, it was a voluntary testing program. If you got a positive test, you were asked to quarantine for 10 days. If you got a negative test, you weren't necessarily given kind of free pass to do anything. But the idea that you were kind of um, that uh, you've been tested, you got a negative test, and that was kind of a, a license to be a little bit like a little bit less cautious. And yet, the program was still very effective. So it basically tells us that false negatives and false positives can be a concern. And of course, we know how to there are ways that we can actually address them but that also through a large mass testing program, that they are something kind of that they're part of the program overall, and that a few people, you know, a small number of people will be affected by it, but the program itself can work very well to drive transmission down, even when there are some false positives and some false negatives. Mm -hmm. I'd love to change uh, directions a little bit and talk about how, um, how we can all use the data that comes out of testing programs on on you know, how many cases are we seeing, as well as the test positivity rate that people hear coming up now and again in the news. Um, how can we use that as individuals to understand, you know, we have a regional COVID dashboard and, a, and they report you know, how many new cases and they report a test positivity rate. And I've also seen the test positivity rate used 
New York, used in, in Europe as part of their traffic light system. So can you talk a little bit about how these data can really inform what the situation is and, and help put the numbers and help, help us make sense of the numbers, case numbers? Sure. So most people um, who aren't kind of public health experts are going to be looking at the case numbers when they're deciding kind of what the trends are, whether things are getting better, whether things are getting worse, what kind of precautions they think they want to be taking. And so case numbers are really, really important for kind of letting people know how serious the concerns are. We can also look at hospitalizations and deaths because, of course, there are a number of cases that don't lead to serious illness. And so we can look at hospitalizations and deaths. And the other important metric is the number of hospitalizations and also how overloaded the local um, intensive care units are. Mm -hmm. So when there's a large surge, the um, intensive care units get overwhelmed. And so it's actually much harder to get the type of care that somebody needs and can actually lead to far greater number of fatalities from COVID-19 mm -hmm. COVID than if the ICUs were not overloaded. So case is what, mo is what most people look at when they're trying to figure out kind of how serious is it. Mm -hmm. Also, um, you can use test positivity that gives you some information. The issue with test positivity is that you need to make sure you understand what it can and can't tell you. And there are several limitations about test positivity data. Yeah, I actually had a personal experience where we got a, a letter last week from that my, so our schools here are open full time. Um, and that there were actually three different schools in my area had exposure letters go out. And in my case, the exposure letter went out eight days after the exposure. Uh, so, I mean, we have used, we've, we've, we've really doubled down here on contract tracing in BC and it, and it has delivered a lot for us. Like most of our cases are related to known um, outbreaks and we have tons of people in quarantine at any given moment, but there are lots of examples where you find out, you know, five days after you were exposed and that's too late in a lot of cases, a lot of damage already can be done. Exactly. I think with contact tracing, it's not always, so we think about, so there's the kind of index exposure and then a subsequent exposure and then the exposure beyond that. Mm -hmm. And so the letter eight days in might be too late for you um, if you were directly exposed, but if you have ex potentially exposed other people, you would be able to kind of let them know. So the idea with contact tracing is that ideally we want to do it quickly, but oftentimes even some delayed contact tracing can still have an impact. Mm -hmm. And the beauty about testing is that a big component of contact tracing is that we want to identify people who have potential exposure in order to um, uh, encourage them to get tested. Yeah. If everybody is getting tested every week, twice a week, whenever they've been you know, exposed to other people, then those letters are a little bit less important because people are already, have already been tested. And any cases that were onwardly transmitted are going to be identified already through testing. And, and so contact tracing is a little bit less important there. Now, I'd actually be curious to get to get your perspective on why why one of our policies exists. So here in BC, um, when you're, they're pretty selective about who they send for testing. So if there's an exposure, even in your child's class, they're only going to contact the people who, you know, maybe sat near that child, and they don't even suggest that the whole class in general, it's not like a blanket policy that the whole class gets tested. And, you know, there's various Facebook groups feeling like this is not enough, and they're not suggesting even that there's quarantining of siblings, for example, of that. So, you know, it's it's not an endless resource. And so I guess it's, I'm just curious your thoughts on how do you, yeah, how do you, I don't know what the word is, manage that resource effectively. 
I think it's a real balancing act because when there's potential exposure, you want to kind of reduce onward transmission and you want to figure out who might be exposed, but also when there are limited resources, limited testing resources, mm -hmm. and also uh, that you don't maybe have the resources to test everybody in every class mm -hmm. where there is some exposure. And also there's a risk when you kind of um, tell people very widely that they've potentially been exposed, there's going to be a lot more um, potentially unnecessarily uh, and unnecessary quarantine. And so it's really a balance between that. So basically what test positivity is, it's just simply of the number of tests that have been performed, how many came back positive. And so there are some slight uh, differences in terms of how test positivity is calculated depending on the country um, or the province or the state. But that's kind of generally the idea about kind of how much of the testing we're doing is actually turning up positive cases. Mm -hmm. And so remember, test positivity is not a measure of prevalence, even though it is correlated with prevalence. So we want to be very careful about how we actually interpret the actual number of test positivity. Yeah, I've seen some reporting about on the on New York, where I thought, are they suggesting that three percent of people are positive? I mean, because New York has had this very clear three percent test positivity rate, and some of the language around that was suggesting that three percent of the population was positive. And I thought, is that? possible? I mean, if you're testing everyone, then your test positivity rate would reflect your prevalence. But if you're not, then it doesn't. Exactly. So that that 3% is not a prevalence or the prevalence is much lower than that, um, yeah. even in places that have very high surges. So we don't want to be looking at the actual number of test positivity and inferring anything about the, the prevalence level. Mm -hmm. So the way that I think about test positivity is so it, it it can be used to calculate prevalence, but it's a complex function. We don't actually know what that function looks like. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be, we don't want to think about translating test positivity directly into prevalence, but we can use test positivity in different ways. So one of the things about test positivity is that the higher test positivity is, the more likely there are more cases that have not been diagnosed in the population. Mm -hmm. And let me try to explain why that is. So when we think about so self-selecting into testing. So most testing is people kind of decide they, they have symptoms, they're aware of some exposure, and they decide they need to go get a test. So most of our test is kind of based on, it's based on people's need, desire, whether they think they need a test. And a lot of times that's directly related to whether they're likely to be positive. Somebody who has stayed home and not interacted with anybody is not gonna really have any demand for a test because they know they haven't contracted um, COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Somebody who's been engaging in more risky behavior, who knows of someone um, in their circle they've had close contact with who is diagnosed with COVID-19 or who have COVID-19 symptoms, they're gonna be much more concerned, but also much more likely to be positive. And so when test resources are limited, it's only the people that are most motivated to get a test who end up get test, getting tested. Mm -hmm. So imagine those very long lines of cars we saw in the US and we still see sometimes. So if, if it's gonna take an hour or two hours or three hours to get a test, somebody who doesn't think they're positive and probably um, isn't really sure if they actually really need the test is not gonna wait in those that very long line of cars. But people who like know that they've been exposed and need to figure out whether they need to self-isolate or have mm -hmm. symptoms are gonna be more willing to sit in that long line. Mm -hmm. So it means that when there's kind of shortage of, of, of testing resources, we're mostly gonna be testing people who are very highly likely to be positive. Mm -hmm. And what that means is when there are shortages, a lot of people who are still contagious and maybe just don't have symptoms or maybe have some somebody in their circle who might have been exposed, but they're not certain about that, they're gonna be a little bit less likely to get tested and they may forego testing when there's a really big shortage, they'll put it off. 
So what that means when test positivity is high, it means most of our people being tested are those kind of most high risk people. And it means a lot of the medium risk and even some of the, and the low risk people are not getting tested. And so that means there's a lot of people who have no symptoms of COVID-19, but are still contagious because we know you can be contagious even if you don't have symptoms. They're wandering, living their lives, hopefully wearing their masks, but we're not sure about that. And they're not self-isolating because they didn't think they needed a test. They didn't get a test um, and they don't know that they're contagious. They don't know that they're positive. And so when we have really high test positivity rates, it means a lot, there's a lot of these undiagnosed cases circulating in the population. And that is a really big risk for transmission. People who don't mm -hmm. think they're positive, yet a lot of them are. Mm -hmm. And so that's this guideline about test positivity. So when test positivity is high, you want to think about, well, what about all those people who are actually contagious but didn't get a test and have no idea they're contagious and are still meeting up with small groups of friends and maybe not mm -hmm. wearing their masks properly and who knows what else, mm -hmm. going to school interacting with other people. So high test positivity correlates directly with a lot of undiagnosed cases in the population, mm -hmm. which should be worrisome in terms of transmission. Mm -hmm. Also, when we have high test positivity and a lot of undiagnosed cases, it means the case numbers we're seeing in the news and in the data dashboard are not reflecting the total number of cases. Yes. So when we're having a surge in the US right now and the test positivity rates are very, very high, that tells us that the surge is literally just the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. And there are many, many more cases that are contagious that are spreading the virus, but they didn't get tested. They don't know that they're positive and they are likely not to be self-isolating because they don't have the information they need to be able to self-isolate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that, that makes, makes a lot of sense, but it's, it's good to, to hear the full the full story the whole the full picture I guess of how how these these two the case numbers and the test positivity tie together because I often when I was making the decision whether or not to send my kids back to school when they're open I was trying to wrap my head around what is the prevalence you know one one out of every X kids in the school has it well I have the case numbers and I have the test positivity and I know that higher test positivity means probably some under testing but it's very hard to know are we talking a factor of two or are we talking a factor of ten. Um, and that's one thing that's really tricky to say. So I have a research study that used test positivity to back out prevalence. So it was a, mm -hmm. uh, on tuberculosis in South Africa, so totally different context. Mm -hmm. But the relationship between test positivity and prevalence is mediated by the type of selection, kind of who decides when to get tested and how. Mm -hmm. And so unless we have a really good understanding of who's getting tested and when and who isn't getting tested, we actually don't have the information we need to link test positivity directly to prevalence. Nice. And so I find test positivity is really good to think about trends. So if yeah. we see that cases are going up and test positivity is also going up, that's mm -hmm. kind of a bad sign that things are getting worse. So in yeah. general, there are caveats to the test positivity data, but I find it useful for trends. So if it's going yeah. up, then things are probably getting worse. If it's coming down, okay, well, that means that like the transmission is slowing, but it hasn't stopped and we're probably still accumulating cases. Mm -hmm. um, the one kind of number that, that I've seen, and of course, this is like a rule of thumb average, it's based on US data, it's not so gonna apply um, to, to BC or to other parts, but that when test positivity was at 20%, that it could mean that there were five times as many cases in the population as there are getting tested in the data. Mm -hmm. And That's so a very I think it's- number. Right. So I think for the most part, test like high rates of test positivity imply that there are a lot more undiagnosed. Because you might think, oh, well, there's maybe twice as many, not five mm -hmm. times as many. Mm 
Yeah. And so I think the important thing to remember is that test, we're aiming for very low test positivity. We want to keep it below 5%, below 3% if possible. And so when it gets up to like 15% or 20%, yeah. that's kind of a red alert range. It's not like, oh, it's just 20%. I'll worry when it gets to 80%. Mm-hmm. The idea is I think when test positivity is ab- above I mean, we should be worried when it's above 5% because that's kind of suggesting the epidemic is out of control. If things are up at 20%, that really is red alert. That's a really, really um, concerning number. And it's that that same idea that when it's up at 15 or 20%, when test positivity is at 15 or 20%, it tells us that the cases we're seeing are just the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. And we actually don't really know what the, how big the rest of the iceberg is. And so we should be really concerned, concerned about that. Yeah. But at 5%, which is actually where we are in BC right now, and it's crept up a lot over the last just few weeks, um, that suggests some under-testing, but probably not in the five-fold range. Or are there scenarios in which it could still be off by that much out of 5%? No, I, I'm at the rate of 5%, it's not going to be five-fold. It's going to be much yeah. lower than that. But with we don't have good data on what those exact numbers mean because mm-hmm. it's kind of the, the prevalence is it's an... It's an um, we don't see those cases. And so how do so so we need a lot of data to be able to kind of infer yeah. the process through which cases in the population end up in the testing data. And we don't yeah. usually have good data on that. So one way to get around that is to do prevalence surveys. So we go and take a random sample of a population yeah. and test them for COVID and then we have a sense. I'm doing some research using that type of data as well. We still have mm-hmm. sample selection issues with them, but they're a little bit easier to, to address mm-hmm. in the context of a of a survey. Um, yeah. But if we have more data like that, then it makes it easier to kind of calculate to figure out what that rate is that mm-hmm. translates test positivity into prevalence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the idea is that we use test positivity as one measure. We also want to think about actual number of cases as yeah. well. We can't just rely on test positivity because there are concerns about um, if if the if the type of selection changes. So kind of who selects into getting tested if that that can change over time and so that means Mm -hmm. the relationship between test positivity and prevalence actually does change over time so it's not like we just need to know what it is at one point in time we need it changes over time from one place Mm -hmm. to the next so they're just um it's a it's a it's it's a big undertaking to calculate that but for most of our decision making knowing that it's like um that there are just a lot more cases out there is um is helpful and i think we shouldn't be satisfied with having test positivity at 5%. The idea is test positivity should be at zero. If we can get test positivity to zero, that's that's having the pandemic completely under control, that yeah. there are kind of no tests. Um, so the idea is not to say, well, let's keep it at five. Let's say, well, what can we do to get it down to um, towards zero? And one of the ways to do that is actually just to scale up the amount of testing. Yeah. It's actually not not cheating on test positivity. That's exactly what you want to do. Test positivity is a measure of, are you doing enough testing? So yeah. if it's at 5% and you're worried that it's creeping up above 5%, the way to address that is to uh, increase the amount of testing, make yeah. testing much more widely available. It will catch more cases sooner. It'll drive test positivity down. It'll slow transmission. It'll keep the virus under better control. Yeah, we actually saw that um, in, here in BC when we sent kids back to school. Um, we started testing kids like crazy because everyone got colds and they had to be tested in order to be able to attend class. And the test positivity rate in kids during September was something like less than 1%. Whereas the, I think the average test positivity rate was much higher, but kids were being screened like crazy because they had these confounding symptoms. 
Exactly. And the good thing about that is that men, they were getting tested often enough, so you, you, often enough, you would be catching cases much sooner. And so the number of cases are also going to be, you know, be driven down um, in that population. So exactly. So the test positivity rate among kids might have been 5% before, the, before this increase mm-hmm. in testing. And then with all the testing, you're able to get it down to 1%. And you can yeah. do the same thing with adults. And that is one possible policy to pursue. And I think that it is really effective because it allows... Um, it allows schools to be back in session mm-hmm. by keeping the vi- the rate of the virus down. It lets us we benefit from having a little bit more freedom when we're able to use testing to keep to keep the rates down. We're able to kind of ease up a little bit on the social um, social distancing and scale up the testing and end up with a little bit more freedom. So our kids are able to be back in school while also driving the number of cases down. Mm-hmm. So I know you don't have a crystal ball, but I'm going to ask you anyways. Um, can you in what do you envision for the next six to twelve months? Um, you know, I might. Will we have at home? Will people will it start to be routine for people to test at home, or is that just too tricky from a regulatory perspective and unlikely to happen? And similarly, you know, on site at, at some point, at the idea of you know at the daycare or at the school, they have you know same day screening that includes you know more than just a. a temperature check do you start do you think there's a possibility that that stuff will be rolled out routinely in different environments with large gatherings and so on i think that definitely in the future that will be more widespread i mentioned the example of slovakia that did a kind of mass testing program that seemed to have been quite effective as far as we can tell in terms of driving transmission down so part of it is that as different parts of um, Canada and the U.S. and different places experiment and try out these new in- innovative test methods, mm-hmm. as well as innovative testing programs that will have more evidence about kind of what works and what doesn't work so well. And we'll see those types of innovative testing programs um, uh, diffuse a little bit more. So kind of, mm-hmm. you know, if somebody takes the initiative to be the first one and it's successful, then everyone kind of looks um, looks at that and learns from it. So I think that we'll definitely see more innovation in terms of testing. We're also seeing more innovation in terms of just the development of these diagnostic tests that will be um, more sensitive, that will be cheaper, um, so kind of bringing the cost down. And of course, mm-hmm. the most important thing is just making sure that they are able to kind of manufacture enough tests to make some of these testing kind of more widespread testing approaches uh, more possible. I think the other thing to remember is that it looks like we have um, very likely to have safe and effective vaccines that are on the horizon. So, of course, with those, there's still some additional um, approval processes that need to go through to kind of confirm um, the efficacy of the the vaccines and the safety profile before they're kind of um, able to be given to the general population. But that is going to help as well. So when we think about controlling the virus um, and managing the pandemic, we have a whole toolbox in terms of social distancing, uh, mask wearing, hand washing, testing, and then we'll soon also have a vaccine. And so the idea that kind of the more tools we have and the more investment we have, kind of the better vaccines we have and the better tests we have and the more tests we have, is gonna make it easier and easier to keep the virus under control. So I think 2021 is going to look a lot better than 2020 um, in terms of getting the virus under control. So it sounds like you're recommending when testing is available, if it's ever offered to you, do it because you, that will be a helpful thing for you and for society. But what about and what about now when, you know, there's debate about should the average asymptomatic test person who can who's not doesn't technically qualify for testing go 
pretend they have a runny nose and go get tested? You know, what do you do now? Well, well, there are limited test resources. I think the number one thing to do if there are limited test resources is to advocate among elected officials to increase resources for testing because it, without adequate testing, people are really um, stuck making pretty difficult decisions. So mm -hmm. ideally, everybody could get precautionary tests whenever they wanted to. And then I think there was some debate um, here in the US um, around Thanksgiving about whether people who were planning on going to celebrate Thanksgiving with family should be getting a precautionary test ahead of time uh -huh. or whether they should be uh, saving those tests for people who have symptoms or people who are hospitalized. Yeah. Yeah. And so the way I think about it is that from a public health perspective, we actually want the, the people that we want to get tested are the ones who are potentially are most likely to be in a super spreader situation. Mm. So if you are going to um, engage in a somewhat risky, large family gathering for Thanksgiving, that's actually somebody that we want you to get tested ahead of time if you're actually mm. going to do that to make sure that it doesn't end up turning into a super spreader event. Mm -hmm. Whereas the idea about that person not getting tested because they're worried about people with symptoms, well, the person with symptoms maybe already is self-isolating and that test right. is not going to help us prevent any transmission. And so I think the right. idea is that testing really is good for preventing transmission. So we want people who are at risk of doing a lot of transmission to get access to those tests. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So we're, we're pretty much out of time. Do you want, have any last words of wisdom to share or misconceptions to kind of uh, bust uh, about, about testing and the way we can and should use it? I am a big proponent of testing and I kind mm. of, um, uh, advocate to invest in testing, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of people who kind of don't necessarily see the real value in testing mm -hmm. or think, well, it's really difficult to increase the amount of testing. So we're going to try to do more contact tracing and maybe do more lockdowns and maybe have more cases and more hospitalizations. But the idea with testing is that you can do a big push of investment in testing, increase the production of all the different types of tests. So PCR, you can increase, um, the, you know, it's more difficult to increase the production of PCR, but for example, uh, using antigen tests. So those rapid antigen tests that those are able to be produced. There's a several pr producers. I know there's um, at least two companies I'm aware of the Canadian based companies that produce those types of tests. And so kind of ramping up those types of tests as well so that you're really investing not just in the PCR testing, but in other types of testing mm -hmm. and then thinking about strategizing around testing policy. 